Hi, this is Alan Chartok, and I'm absolutely delighted to be in conversation today with the Dean of Albany Medical College, Vincent Verdile, M.D. Dr. Verdile officially retires at the end of this year, but he'll remain at the Medical Center as Dean Emeritus. Dr. Verdile, a native of Troy, New York, received his undergraduate degree from Union College and his medical degree from Albany Medical College, class of 1984. We'll talk with Dr. Vincent Verdile about all of this and much more. But first, welcome Dr. Vincent Verdile. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm delighted you're here. You seem awfully young to retire. Uh, what went into your decision? Well, I'm actually 66 this year, so I'm not that young. <laughs> well, I got you by 14 years. <laughs> so tell us about yourself. So as you mentioned, I'm a local person, born and raised in Troy, New York. I went to uh, Union College locally and then the Albany Medical College subsequently. I went to the University of Pittsburgh and where I trained as an emergency physician. My background is in emergency medicine and spent, after my training, which is three years, spent another seven or eight years there on the faculty at the University of Pittsburgh, ran the emergency department at the main teaching hospital, the Presbyterian University Hospital, and then came back to upstate New York uh, really to be closer to family. Both my wife and I are from upstate New York, the Troy area, and uh, we came back up this way to be closer to family. What does the dean do? I'm the uh, chief cook and bottle washer, so I do everything. Uh, you know, the dean really has responsibilities over all parts of the tripartite mission. So I always tell people I live at the nexus of research, education, and clinical care. So I oversee, obviously, medical education, and we educate not only physicians, but nurse anesthetists, PAs, bioethicists, and scientists. I oversee the research program, and in 2020, we had over $20 million in extramural funding to support research. And then I also oversee clinical care, the delivery of care through my faculty practice, physician practice plan, which is now upwards of 450 doctors who yeah. drive the business for the hospital. Yeah. Well, it's a tremendous institution. First of all, the medical college has combined with the medical center. When I first arrived, when Albany Medical College gave us this radio station, which I know you weren't there, but I have to promise you that we were then grateful and we still are. But it has made a tremendous difference to so many people. Look, people want to get into medical school. Is that a big issue for you that you get a lot of pressure? The numbers are staggering. So this year, we, as a matter of fact, I oriented my 21st class, welcomed my 21st class of medical students to the Albany Medical College. The candidate pool was 14,000 applications. Wow. We interviewed about 800, wow. and we accepted 100 through that open pool. And we take about 40 students through our combined degree programs with Union, RPI, and Siena. So these are students that identify themselves as high school students that they want to become a physician, and they can enroll in RPI, Union, or Siena and be guaranteed admission to Albany right. Medical College. So this, incredibly robust applicant pool. So why do people want to be doctors? Some people said it's the Fauci effect. Uh, but in fact, we've had increasing uh, numbers of applicants over the last 15 or 20 years. When I first got in the dean's office, it was probably about 6,000 applicants uh, for the same number of positions. So I think it's still a very noble profession. I think it's a career that's uh, worth living. And students that are in undergraduate programs see this as a great opportunity for themselves uh, and their future. How's it changed? I mean, I can remember, I'm old, I can remember living on 96th Street the doc would come with his black bag. That doesn't happen anymore. You know, if you're really sick, they bundle you up and they take you to the doctor's office. So there are still physicians that make house calls, which you describe, and yes. we do that a lot with our, our senior geriatric patients who get discharged from hospital and need a closer follow-up than they could possibly get into their own doctor's office. So we actually dispatch a doctor or nurse practitioners in to see those patients. So we do do that. But we've gone from that what you described of home visits to now telehealth, where care is delivered remotely sure. through a telehealth kind of a situation. So, so things have changed very dramatically. So you mentioned emergency medicine yes. before, which is one of my favorite subjects. We have a little tiny hospital in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, where I live, Fairview Hospital. And the emergency department is superb. Those people have to know a lot about a lot, don't they? Yes, very much so. Emergency physicians are, I say, the jack of all trades, the ace of none. We know a lot of medicine and pediatrics and adults and geriatrics and obstetrics. So you name it, we have to have some understanding about the acute phase of an illness that would make you present to an emergency department. I may not know the long management of a person with hypertension, 
but I can manage somebody who's having a hypertensive emergency in the emergency department. So it's a little bit sort of on the front end of the acute care of, of patients that we, we spend our life thinking about and working towards. How has this community embraced or needed the medical college? Uh, that, that's a good question. I think I'll turn around and say that this community has benefited greatly from the Albany Medical College. Probably upwards of 40% of the practicing physicians in this community yeah. and the greater upstate New York community are graduates of either the medical college or the residency programs, the specialty programs at the Albany Medical Center Hospital. So the community has benefited greatly from having a medical college in its backyard. Now, the Albany Medical Universe, of course, has expanded. They've bought a lot of other hospitals. They've merged with other hospitals. And how has that affected the medical school itself? So specifically related to the medical school, it's provided opportunities for different learning environments. So, for example, Saratoga Hospital, Glens Falls Hospital, Columbia Memorial Hospital, those are the only hospitals in those communities. And if you look at Columbia Memorial, it's a very rural community. So our students get an opportunity to do rotations there and say family medicine or general surgery and learn about a different practice style, not an urban setting, but, but a, more of a rural setting where it may be very different uh, in the way patients present to the hospital or the types of conditions that they see. Has that changed your role as dean? I'm married to a Hudsonian, so I know a little bit about Columbia Memorial. And, you know, it wasn't always seen as the greatest institution. But now with Albany Med as a partner, it seems to me things have improved. Am I wrong? It is our feeling and our philosophy that the care delivered of any of our affiliates will be as good as the care that's delivered at the Albany Medical Center main campus. Is that to, right? Up to the extent of their capabilities. So you we're not swear gonna, to that? So we're not going to do open-heart <laughs> surgery at Columbia Memorial, <laughs> yeah. but the cardiology group at Columbia Memorial, for the conditions that they treat, should be as highest quality as possible and consistent with the quality of care that we provide at Albany Med. So we are seeing as we move forward with this, and this relationship is new with our affiliates. It's only been a few years that our physicians integrate with their physicians. So it helps on two fronts. One, it helps with the referral of patients back and forth between and among the hospitals. So a patient ends up at Glens Falls that needs something at Albany Med, they know who sure. to call and how that relationship is. And then our physicians can then impart some of their wisdom and understanding about the care and treatment of patients that are staying at those hospitals. So so it's it's a you know mutually beneficial relationship and I think it's a win-win for the patients. Have you ever had to throw a student out of the college? Yes. Can you tell us a little without getting yourself into trouble? So we, we bend over backwards in order to uh, retain our students. We spend a lot of time and energy in recruiting them and making sure we have the right fit for the Albany Medical College. But sometimes uh, students uh, deviate uh, in their uh, honesty as it pertains to either test-taking or interacting with patients. And so uh, those students are dismissed. They can appeal the dismissal. We have an honor committee that's run by the students for the students. So if a student is caught cheating, let's use cheating as an example, that student will be brought before the student honor committee. Interesting. And that honor committee will determine if it's a material breach, a material cheat, and then make a recommendation to the dean's group about whether or not the student should be sustained in school or be dismissed. And if they're sustained, and that's fine. It's a, it's a sealed record, so to speak. It doesn't tarnish that person's going forward. If they are dismissed, then the student can still appeal that up until an appeal all the way to my office where I would hear the appeal. I hate to do this to you, but as we read the papers, there isn't much time that passes without a doctor uh, having been accused of being sexually aggressive with one of his patients. Is this a no-no? It's an absolute no-no to cross that line, if that was your question. Yes, that is absolutely. the question. It's an absolute no-no. I mean, I think just like any profession, if whether you're an attorney, whether you're a school teacher, I mean, there's clearly social boundaries by which you don't cross. And part of our training of medical students is understanding those relationship boundaries when you're dealing with patients. For example, you should never examine an opposite sex person without a chaperone in the room if you're examining sexual organs or body organs. So, Yeah. Have you ever had to face such a situation where somebody's been accused of violating that? No, I've not had that one. I've not had the case where a physician or student has crossed the line and had to be dismissed for that purpose. I'm sure in history there are some examples of doctors having married somebody they met while they were a patient. I would bet that's true, yes. <laughs> None come to mind, but I would bet that's true. Let's talk to you about raising money. 
Yes. Under your leadership, the college endowment has nearly tripled, growing from $43.5 million in 2001 to nearly $125 million last year. How come? How have you been so successful? Mostly because I put the time and effort into it. And How do you do it? I spend about a third of my time out there fundraising. And my, my primary focus for fundraising are the alumni of the medical college. Obviously, I'm happy to take money from anyone, but sure. I focus my effort on, on alumni that have a connection back to the medical college and understand that they are where they are in their life because of the medical college. Yeah. So fundraising is a lot like sales. I try to sell a concept to a donor or potential donor about this is important, whether it's scholarship for students, whether it's new facilities or whatever it is, and try to listen very carefully to what the donor's interested in and try to match those up. So I have a laundry list of needs, and then I meet donors who articulate their interest, and then I try to match up their interest to what my needs are. Now, there are those donors, potential donors, who don't want to have their name on the door. Yes. Then there are thems that does, or that do, as we say. Tell us about how that works. You have to find out why they're there, but if they're there because they want their name on the door, why not? Absolutely. I would say 100% in agreement with you. If they want their name on the door or on the laboratory or on the classroom, I'm happy to put a bronze plaque there and have a ceremony and stand in front of the plaque with the donor. Many donors, to your point, don't want their name on the building or on the laboratory or on the classroom because they want to have their gift be more discreet, uh, not attract other non-for-profit organizations that may want some money as well. So I have a lot of donors who have given six- and seven-figure gifts that do not want it publicized, do not want anything in the paper, do not want their name on the building, and that's fine. So what's the relationship like between the medical college and the institution, the whole institution, Albany Medical Center? I think it's a great relationship that uh, the way the medical college and the Albany Medical Center Hospital have come together. I remind people all the time that the medical college was founded in 1839, 10 years before the hospital. So I always remind folks that we were there first and then the hospital came second. But under the leadership of Jim Barba and, and the board of directors. Wonderful man, if I may just take a moment to say so. I really love that guy. It's a mutual admiration. I do too. He picked me out of obscurity to do this job. And so I've been doing it for 21 years because uh, he gave me the opportunity and the board of directors. But I will say that under his leadership and, and the board, and as you know, the Albany Medical Center Corporation was established sometime in the late 80s. But it wasn't until Jim Barber got in his role did really we begin to become an integrated healthcare delivery system and an educational system. Now, Jim Barber is a lawyer, not a doctor. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> so what do you make of that? Well, I think in many, many institutions around the country, leaders of academic health science centers are not physicians. They can be lawyers. The person that runs the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center is a psychologist. So not surprising that a lawyer, it's, it's really about leading people, managing people, holding people accountable. And Jim was a master at doing that. Are there things that you'd like to see the medical college doing that it can't do because of lack of funds? There's nothing that we are not doing. There may be things we could do more of, and I'll give you an example, something like interprofessional education. So since we are a freestanding medical college, not attached to a larger university, we don't necessarily have access to nursing students or respiratory therapy students or mm -hmm. pharmacy students. So when we want to put together interprofessional education teams to teach students how to work together around the care and treatment of a patient, we have to speak to the College of Pharmacy or speak to Russell Sage. Or, so I think we could accelerate interprofessional education if we were all under one roof, so to speak, which I see at other medical schools that are parts of larger universities. Well, can you make that happen? We are. We've begun those conversations, and we're dealing with the nursing program at Hudson Valley. We're dealing with the nursing program at Russell Sage, obviously the College of Pharmacy right across the right street. So we're doing very interesting things with having pharmacists, for example, be on the teaching rounds when students and residents are on the floor. The pharmacists will come and be there as part of the educational milieu for those learners. So it's been very interesting. So let me ask you this. You are, of course, a doctor, an MD, Dr. Verdile, and the question I have for you is, do you have to keep your hand in? In other words, do you treat patients? I know that we know a lot of doctors, and some of them are family friends, and they are just besieged by telephone calls from their relatives and their nieces and nephews and their friends. How does that, how does yes. that work for you? 
So the, the attractive part about emergency medicine was that you could really be a shift worker. You could work your 10 or 12 or 14-hour shift and then have a day off, and you're mm-hmm. not involved with patient care, and you're free to take up your hobbies or do whatever you'd like to do. I stopped actually seeing patients in 2004, 2005, only because it was difficult managing my time. There was a lot of work to be done in the college. ED is a very busy place, and so I had a hard time managing the, the time of both. Plus, because I wasn't working a full, regular schedule, it was hard to maintain privileging and and procedural-based competencies. And so I was becoming less and less effective in my own mind as far as being able to provide the care. But I still get tons and tons of calls from friends and family and cousins about issues related to, can you identify the right physician for me to get in touch with in order to have something addressed? So that still happens quite a bit. Well, so let's talk COVID. I mean, we have to do that. All of a sudden, uh, this thing has hit and come over the American people and the world, of course, in a way that we never expected. And now it seems like this is just the beginning. What can you tell us? Well, obviously, the Delta variant, we have our eye on that right now and watching very carefully the seven-day rolling average in our upstate New York area. So we see it increasing. So obviously, we're keeping our eye on the variant. Clearly, the vaccine works. It's safe. Over 165 million people in the United States have had both doses in the case of the Moderna, Pfizer, or single-dose Johnson & Johnson, and the side effects are minimal. So the vaccine works. It works against the variant. And even if you contract the variant after being vaccinated, you have a much more modulated or less severe case of COVID. Have all your doctors been vaccinated? Yes. Our physician staff, our nursing staff, and our, our medical students up to this point. So do you see this as something that we can expect a lot more of, this COVID thing? Specifically related to COVID or or other pathogens? Yes, other pathogens. Thank you for that. I think that we will see more COVID. I think it'll be endemic rather than pandemic. And I think we will see other pathogens, other viruses that emerge. Tony Fauci, Dr. Fauci gave a talk at Albany Medical College probably in the mm, early 2000s and talked about the emergence of virulent pathogens around the world. And there really is no way to predict where they will emerge from and what their form and nature would be. But he was concerned back then, and that was almost 20 years ago. So So you're going to retire. What are you going to do? Well, my retirement will be staged over 2022. I've committed to uh, Dr. McKenna, our new CEO and president, to make sure I transition my office to the next person. So my transition was only a couple of weeks when the person that I replaced moved on to another position. So that'll take, you know, 90 days, 120 days. It's a different organization now than it was in 2000 when I got in the dean's office as we talked about our affiliates and changing educational paradigms. So then after that, I think my time and energy will be focused on fundraising and laying the groundwork for the new dean and for our new president related to raising money for the medical college and the medical center. So you're going to stay basically as an important cog in this in this uh, Albany medical uh, hospital regime. I'm going to stay as a cog. I don't know important is a, is a well <laughs> relative... raising money. Yes, C- certainly, <laughs> certainly you will. So why are so many Americans not taking the vaccine? Do you think there is vaccine hesitancy for every vaccine? So this is not unique. So the flu vaccine, we only get about 60 percent of the U.S. population takes the flu vaccine. Why? It's effective. It's safe. Don't know why. It could be cultural. It, it could be a million different things, religious basis, why people don't take it. Suspicion that, you know, it's a drug that's going to harm them in some way or cause some side effects. So I can't explain vaccine hesitancy other than it's our obligation as healthcare delivery systems to educate and motivate people to see the benefit of it and try to get as widespread as we can. Well, you sound reasonable. Doesn't it make you angry? It makes me angry. Uh, you know, I'm not angry about it. I'm curious about it. And, you know, as you talked about people calling me for doctor arrangements, I take probably a dozen calls a week about the vaccine and people asking me about it. And I give them the same information. It's safe. It's effective. 165 million people in the United States have had it. They're doing just fine. So I think it's part of education and what physicians do is educate. And it's, it's our obligation to educate people and bring them to the decision that they are comfortable making. I think there will always be vaccine hesitancy in this country. I don't think we're going to get 100 percent of the U.S. population vaccinated. Is medicine these days too specialty oriented? In other words, too many doctors specializing and don't often talk to each other when treating the same patient. Put another way and adding on a caveat B to this. I remember when Dr. Bowerhan in Copake, New York, or Dr. Gilligan in Great Banjo, where I lived, 
you went to them and they solved your problems. They told you about what you were doing. Now you get into a doctor's office and they send you to another doctor. And maybe that doctor sends you to two more doctors. So there's a tremendous splintering effect. Bothers me a lot. I wondered what you yes. think. Yes. So what I think is two things have happened. One, there's been such an explosion of medical changes and medical technology, medical therapies. It's hard for the general practitioner to stay up to date. So I mentioned that I slowed down my emergency medicine practice. Sure. Between the time that I slowed it down and actually departed, new drugs were coming out that I had not even been schooled up on yet. And just in my little discipline of- Don't you watch television? Yes. <laughs> uh, so, so I think what's driving physicians to be subspecialized is they, the niche play of cardiology, for example. You become an expert in the care and treatment of patients with heart disease. And in that case, you have learned the entire spectrum of that disease and all the therapeutics and managements of that disease. I think the other thing that's driving people is the fact that there is malpractice issues that are happening. And I, I think, you know, we as physicians are very cautious. And so what you describe is what I hear often that someone say, well, I thought the patient had X, Y, or Z, but I referred him to an exologist because I wasn't confident that that was a diagnosis. And I don't want to miss a diagnosis because this has been my patient for 20 years or 10 years or whatever. So that guillotine sort of hangs over the head of physicians sometimes to worry about have I done enough to make sure this isn't cancer or this isn't a brain tumor or whatever the disease might be? We're talking to Dr. Vincent Verdial, Dean of the Albany Medical College. And Dr. Verdial, the question then becomes money. Do doctors make more or less than they used to? Doctors clearly make less today than they did even 10 years ago. Really? Yes. Can you explain that? Man. Sure, sure. I think we are moving to value-based payment systems, performance-based compensation. So it's no longer going to be a simple fee-for-service kind of transaction where you see a patient and you drop a bill for the care and treatment of that patient. Now it will be in the context of the patient's wellness, addressing the social determinants of health and disease. So it's a much broader portfolio of what the physician has to worry about. And the payment schema are now stretched across that spectrum rather than simply the doctor-patient transaction that occurs. So, for example, you know, are you, are you as a primary care doctor making sure your patients get all their mammograms or colonoscopies or their PSAs for prostate cancer, et cetera, et cetera? So the, the payers, the insurance companies, are understanding that the acute care episode is a very expensive episode of care when you end up as a hospitalized patient. They're trying to make us look upstream, us as a healthcare industry, look upstream and make sure we're doing all we can for patients and prevention of what could be their acute care illness. So, of course, everybody's talking about the idea that we might have some kind of universal health care in the United States eventually. You see that coming? I do see that coming. And as an emergency physician, I welcome it. I think it's the right thing to do. Do you sense that your colleagues are a little afraid of it or that some of them are? I think some of them are, yeah. I don't think it's a universally accepted notion by all physicians because Many practicing physicians today are still in a fee-for-service mentality that I see a patient, I get paid for a patient encounter. Hmm. So, I mean, you're a dean. Obviously, you see these docs. They're coming up. Come on. It used to be that a lot of doctors thought that this was the land of milk and honey. If you went there, you are going to make a lot of money, and their parents thought that. And medical school was extremely expensive, and so they did it. Has that changed? Medical school is still extremely expensive. How much? We're about 60000 a year for our students, plus their living expenses. And, of course— That doesn't sound like that much when you consider what some of the private colleges are, that's are, are true. getting. But those amounts, Dr. Verdial, they don't pay for the medical school. You need more than what the students are coming up with, yes? Yes. So our students graduate with, on average, about $215,000 of debt. So when they graduate, they've taken on loans in order to finish their medical education. Their parents aren't paying for it? In some cases, they are. Yeah, in some cases they are. In some cases, they're helping to the best that they could. So I tried to get to this before, but I want to ask again, is there too much specialty now? In other words, too many doctors who specialize and don't often talk to each other when treating the same patient. So there are two parts to that. So I think there are less and less people going into primary care, primary pediatrics, and primary family medicine because it's hard work. You see a lot of patients, they're very complicated. So primary care is, is a is a hard career to follow. And it doesn't pay as well, right? It does Especially. not pay as well as the person who does brain surgery. Mm -hmm. But the person who does brain surgery is trained for six or seven years after medical school, and the family medicine person is trained for three years. So it's a different 
scale of, of learning and training. Part of the lack of communication or insufficient communication has a lot to do with the electronic health record. So we've been talking about electronic health record in this country for 20 years. But yet, you know, you could see a patient at Saratoga or Columbia, and their record systems are different than Albany Medical Center. So if I'm going to refer you to a patient at Saratoga Hospital, uh, he or she has no access to your records unless you carry them and bring them to see them. Now, one of our initiatives as part of our affiliation with our other hospitals is to create one platform so that patients can move seamlessly, their information can move seamlessly between and among the institutions, to your point. So is that, that hard? It's expensive. I don't think it'll be hard, but electronic health records are very expensive to install. Let me just follow up on that a little bit. Albany Med has been very aggressive about these affiliations with other medical institutions. St. Peter's is the big, at least is thought to be the big competitor, although I don't see it that way. So you say you want the same paper trail in each of these places. Has that been a difficult move? We are just embarking on that discussion now with our affiliates. So we have not come to a conclusion on either the type of platform, the electronic health record platform, or how it will be installed among and between us. But the vision that's been articulated by our board of directors and by our president CEO is if we're going to be partners in the care and delivery, in the providing care to the community that we serve, then we need to be as facile with with exchange of re medical information as we can be, and that can only be done with a single platform electronic health record. Well, so we hear about gene editing these days and the possibilities, uh, both good and bad, as a result. What will medicine look like in the future? Do you see a day when cancer is cured? I do see a day when cancer is cured. I, I look at some of the very interesting things that are going on right now with CAR T-cell therapy, where you take pa a patient's own T-cells, jazz them up, and make them come back and attack the cancer that's in the patient. So Albany Medical Center has the Albany Prize in Medicine, and uh, two years ago we gave it to three physicians who uh, developed the CAR T-cell therapies, uh, Jim Allison, Carl June, and Steve Rosenberg. Very interesting therapy, and I think I don't. If we can prevent cancer, that's obviously the ideal. But some patients will still contract cancer because of genetic changes that happen in their body. Uh, some of these new therapies that are coming out there are curative. Just astounding what's happening. So I'm 80 years old, and my question is: In my lifetime? I think in your lifetime. Yes. No kidding. The Times Union reports that the Ellis Hospital CEO told Schenectady officials that abortions will no longer be performed at the hospital if a merger with St. Peter's goes through. Any comments? I'm not surprised. I think St. Peter's now is, used to be part of Catholic Health East, is now part of Trinity out of Livonia, Michigan. It's huge. Uh, they're a Catholic religious-based organization. When St. Peter's took over the Troy Hospital Systems, they also did not perform the full range of reproductive services. So it doesn't surprise me that if, in fact, the relationship between St. Peter's and Ellis matures and they become a part of their system, that those procedures will be prohibited. I think that paper said they do about 50 abortions a year at Ellis Hospital. So how do you feel about that? I feel committed to providing the full range of reproductive services. That's something that the Albany Medical System is committed to doing, and we will continue to do that. So I think as an organization, we need to teach that to our students and our residents that perform those procedures, and, and, and we should offer those services to the people of this community. Are you Catholic? Yes, I am. And how do you feel when you see something like, you know, a Catholic institution saying, if somebody comes in, a patient comes in and needs an abortion or wants an abortion, they get turned away? I think they are not a full-service hospital, and they're not serving the needs of the public to deny services at their facility. So the president, Governor Cuomo, the former who I knew quite well, one bishop once said, you'll burn in hell for doing this. Has that ever happened to you? I've never been to hell. But <laughs> <laughs> I would just say that, you know, we are committed as you know, we may be the last full service hospital in, in the 25 counties that we serve. But at least us and our affiliates are highly committed to providing a full range of services to our patients. Dr. Verdial, some people have said, you know, that the medical college is a place where everybody gets served. I know that I've been there a number of times myself. Whereas some of the other hospitals, I don't know how to phrase this, perhaps in the St. Peter's genre are places that attract middle-class patients. Do you see that at all? I don't see that. You know, this region, I think, is well served by the hospitals here in how we take care of uh, indigent or Medicaid patients. There is not one predominant hospital. We all share in the care and burden of, of uninsured. And, and, and honestly, uninsured is becoming 
uh, an old term now because of the ACA, and people now have an opportunity to ACA get, Obamacare. Obamacare, yeah, to have an opportunity to have access to health care. So upstate New York did not have a lot of uninsured to begin with, but there were some. But the fact that now they can go online and or subscribe and get uh, ACA health insurance, which is essentially Medicaid health insurance, so the number of uninsured patients have gone down considerably. Is competition among the hospitals a good thing? Absolutely a great thing. Could you elaborate? I think competition among hospitals leads to better patient choices. So I think the more public we are with regards to our outcomes, our costs, uh, the more informed the consumer is. So talking about buying a car, sometimes you spend more time thinking about how, how and where you're going to buy a car than where and how am I going to have my open heart surgery done? Who's going to do it? What's that doctor's outcomes? What's his profile in the New York State databases? So I think we should have a much more transparent system so that people can make intelligent choices. Dr. Verdile, I live over the right over the line in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, two and a half hours from New York City, two and a half hours from Boston. People have to make up their minds. And quite often they say, well, if it isn't a major teaching institution in Boston or New York, I want only the best. Now, I say that in order to provoke you, <laughs> but is that fair? Well, I, I do think that uh, academic health science centers, and particularly attached to a medical school, yeah. tend to attract a caliber of doctor that want to be in a teaching milieu and be involved with clinical trials, bringing cutting-edge therapies to patients, sure. and being involved with new technologies. And I think that's the difference between an academic health science center and a community hospital, where physicians may not have the same curiosity or the same interest in, in advancing medical knowledge. Just for the sake of definition, Albany Medical College is... It's an academic health sciences center because yes. it's a medical school attached to a hospital right? with teaching programs and research programs. And okay. Again, yeah, so back to the tripartite mission. Right? I right. live my life right at the nexus of the tripartite mission. Right. So are people wrong when they say, I insist on going to Columbia Presbyterian or to someplace in Boston as opposed to the Albany Medical Center? Well, I would, I would say that we are on par with those institutions based on the, the types of doctors that we've hired over the last 20 years that I've recruited. So we've been very, very strategic to make sure we're recruiting the types of doctors that serve this, our population in our 25 counties so that we don't have to have people going to Boston or New York. Someone from Ticonderoga maybe doesn't necessarily want to drive to Boston or New York, and we can offer those services at Albany. Now, depending on what disease you have, whatever condition you have, I would always encourage people to get a second opinion. Go go to Boston or go to New York or go to Philadelphia and see what those doctors would have to say if our doctors are right or wrong. And uh, you can always have your care at Albany Medical Center. But, but I would say the Albany Medical Center of today, in 2021, is on par with those teaching hospitals, those academic health science centers in Boston or New York or Philadelphia. So... What would you do if you had a disease? Would you stay here or would you go to New York or Boston? I would absolutely stay here. You have to remember, every doctor that works at Albany Med, I've recruited. <laughs> so I know them very well. I know their capabilities. I know their talents. Uh, and they would be candid with me if they said, look, this is something we can't do here because it requires sure. X, Y, gene therapy or requires whatever. Then they would be truthful, as they would be with any patient. But my preference would be to stay local so that I don't disrupt my family and my, my wife and my aunts and uncles that would want to come visit me. Sure. So I've often heard that when a patient comes to the Albany Medical Center, it better not be on a weekend. <laughs> is, that, is that not true? So I, I always use the analogy that the Albany Medical Center Hospital is like Las Vegas. We're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You get the same services on a Monday at 9 o'clock in the morning as you will on a Saturday night at 3 o'clock in the morning. Our operating rooms are going, our ICUs are staffed. It's just, we run 24-7. We're not a Monday through Friday operation. You and I share one thing in common, that's for sure. I defer to you in almost everything else, but we have both been responsible for hiring. Yes. A lot of people over the years. What do you look for? So it goes back to the questions you were asking me earlier about you know how do physicians come off the rails and behave in a certain way that's uh, unethical or, or bad, bad conduct. Okay. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, my when I, I don't necessarily have to review a curriculum vitae, I really want to know about the person. Yeah, absolutely. What their interests are, uh, how they spend their time, how they got to where they are. Uh, so those are really important 
important question about the roundness of a person or, or the, the whole sphere of that person. That's really what I look for. Now, more and more, people who are going into medicine, you know, have been educated in other countries. How does that affect you? So there's two parts of medical education. So one is what we call undergraduate medical education. So you go to a medical school, either allopathic or osteopathic medical school. Those are all U.S., for the most part, U.S. students. So we don't have any, for example, international students in our medical school. So no Indian students in your medical school? Yes, but they are U.S. citizens. They are first-generation Indian-American yes, folks. Yes, that's not what I meant. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, in graduate medical education, which is, you think of that as sort of the finishing school to undergraduate medical education, where you come and learn how to be a family practitioner or a urologist or a neurologist, in those programs, there are international medical school graduates that enroll in those programs. So we may have 15% of our residency training program slots filled by an international graduate who could be from uh, a European school or a Caribbean school, or we could have a U.S. citizen that studied in Ireland for medical school and then came back to the U.S. for their graduate medical edu mm -hmm. education training. So can you remember in your experience having a potential doc come into your office and sit down and you said, uh-oh, and if you said, uh-oh, what might have been the uh-oh? Well, I think the uh-ohs for me were what we were just talking about before. Is how, how does that person interact uh, with me, uh, with other people that they've interviewed with? And I think that's a glimpse in how they interact with their patients. Is and that so, important when you're a brain surgeon? Absolutely. How so? Because the brain surgical procedure may last 90 minutes, but the pre-surgery and post-surgery may be months. So the way that surgeon interacts with people and the way they comport themselves and the way they speak to people is very, very important. I, I want my brain surgeon, after surgery and before surgery, to be able to sit down, hold my hand, explain to me what happened, talk to me from the heart about my brain tumor. Wow. It's very interesting because, you know, uh, there are many people who need expert help, and they have to really rely on, on the people that you've hired and the people that you have. And so one wonders, Dr. Verdile, you know, whether or not the best brain surgeon in the world who can't relate to human beings may not be what you want. I knew a guy who was supposed to be, have been, he's dead. The top pediatric brain surgeon in the world, a guy by the name of Fred Epstein, he'd been there for a long time, long gone now. And people don't remember him, but his picture was on the front page, I believe, of Time Magazine. Hmm. And he used to bring people from all over the world, and he, I, he would operate on them and do that at NYU, I guess he was. So if you get a star, can you keep them? Well, there's a couple of parts to the question. Yeah, so, yes, yeah. yeah, so many of our physicians have been with the medical center 10, 12, 15 years. I, I have just recruited some new clinical chairs. Uh, we have 12 clinical departments, but the ones that have left have been there between 12 and 20 years, some 29 years. So there's a, you know, Albany, upstate New York is a great place to live. It's a great place to raise a family. So we've been very, very fortunate to be able to recruit top talent, bring them to Albany, and have them nest in and, and have a fulfilling career here. The second part of your question is, I don't want to sacrifice the compassionate side of medicine from the technical side. So yes, there, there have been people that were incredibly well-trained, highly technical, the top cutting edge of their field. And a great history. But did not fit sort of the Albany Med milieu and cultural milieu about caring about people. I'm a political scientist, so how is the political apparatus, the political part of Albany, how does it relate to the way the medical college does its job? It's a very tough question. I know that. You know, but in other words, Albany is a place that's the capital of New York State. I know that, well, I'm not supposed to say it, but the Governor Cuomo, the former Governor Cuomo, used Albany Med when there was trouble. So you're also going to be asking state government for money. Does the fact that you're here help you in terms of the kind of money raising that you spoke about in the beginning? So I would say we have a great relationship with the Department of Health and the Commissioner of Health and, and the second floor of the governor's office uh, as it pertains to conducting health care in the state of New York. I think we've had a very uh, good uh, iterative exchange of ideas, and particularly through COVID, we were very interactive with uh, the governor's office and particularly 
the county commissioner Whalen. Uh, we had a lot of uh, interactions with them, um, but I don't think we're treated uh, in a special way as it comes to this disbursement of monies from the state government. Mm. I think we're treated like any other facility. We articulate the argument. If the argument seems compelling and the state has the funds, uh, we have access to funds. But I don't think there's any uh, special treatment, not least in, that I've been, ever been aware of. How are we doing with gene editing as a future fix? I think it's very exciting. I think uh, one of the Albany Med Prize recipients were a group of five who discovered... You should stop there, and we should remind everybody that Albany Med gives out a prize every year for a really distinguished doc or series of talks. Yes. It's a half-a-million-dollar prize uh, that was uh, founded by Marty Silverman. Who we and, knew here very, very well. Yes, was a ge- <laughs> what a great gentleman. And uh, this is the 20th year that we've awarded the prize, and I can't tell you who it is, but it'll be very interesting. So... Two or three years ago, we gave it to the CRISPR group, five and five scientists from around the world, Spain, Germany, Stanford, MIT, and uh, Rockefeller. And their gene editing technologies, uh, which is fascinating, may cure, for example, sickle cell disease, to be able to change the genetic component of a cell, blood cell, so that it doesn't sickle. So it's fascinating. Dr. Verdile, how do you do that? That I can't explain. I'm an ER doctor, remember. Okay. I can't explain that to you. But it has That's to do ER, with... ER, not ear. Go That's ahead. right. ER, <laughs> emergency medicine. I can't explain to you the technology, but it's essentially going in and splicing and removing and replacing. The genes. The gene. Yeah. And we think that this may be the cure for cancer, too, right? could very well be a cure for yeah. cancer. You've identified many, many genes that are the uh, precipitant for cancers, P53 and colon cancer. So if you can figure out how to adjust that gene before the emergence of a cancer, then that's that's really preventive health. Doctors are scared, quite reasonably so, about being sued for malpractice. And that's why the insurance that people have to pay is so huge. Now at your place, obviously, they don't have to worry about that. The college worries about it, isn't that so? Yes, we, we are a self-insured institution. So our, our physicians and our nurses and our technicians, we self-insure them. So we do not have a third-party malpractice company that provides us insurance. But if you get hit real hard, that could be a disaster. We have layers, yes. We have layers that are insured by other agencies, but the primary responsibility is the Albany Medical Center's responsibility. What about walking around? I often talk about management here at WMC, management by walking around. Yes. Do you walk around? All the time. I'm a walk-around person. We have in our organization, we call it Senior Leader Rounding, and we just started a new phase this week. Uh, where each These of are us, like grand rounds used to be called, no? No, no, this oh. is walk around. The senior executives uh, of our organization, oh, we walk around the institution. Each of us have a path, so certain areas that we hit related to our responsibility. So I may, look, I may go to a physician's clinic, I may go to the emergency department, and I just walk around and talk to the staff and what's going on, what do you need, what's happening today, how's your staffing, how's the patient acuity. So we do senior leader rounding. So there are seven of us. Um, we each have a pathway that we walk through the organization to see what's going on and have our ear close to the ground. And I think it's very, very helpful. We've been doing this for uh, six years now. So we were on medical malpractice. I wanted to ask you about this. Has that gotten out of hand that physicians are so defensive about being accused of anything that it may work to eliminate some of the things that made it the old docs so, yes. so great? Yes, we, we were talking about that a minute ago. I think you're right. When we talked about the fact that medical care sometimes is fragmented and the primary care doctor is handing off patients to all these subspecialists sure. so as to not miss something. Sure. And part of that is the, is the fear that by missing something, you're going to get sued by that patient or that patient's family should the patient not survive. So I do think that drives, for example, maybe unnecessary testing, uh, x-rays, CAT scans, MRIs. Uh, unnecessary referrals to other physicians, uh, but it is where we are today. The cost of malpractice in the state of New York is astronomical. Talk to me about cannabis marijuana reform. Yes. What challenges does that offer to a medical center, a medical hospital, a doctor? Well, the challenges are that as an employer, uh, we drug test all of our employees, and so now this is going to be in everybody's drug testing, right? So that every doctor gets it. Every employee. Te- Every employee gets tested. Mm -hmm. You have a test that will tell you whether somebody's been imbibing marijuana? Yes. No kidding. I didn't think they had that yet, which is one of the problems. Yes, it detects the THC, yeah. I'm sorry, could you say that again? It'll detect some of the metabolites in the marijuana. Okay, and the implications for you if they were positive? Well, we're grappling with that right now because if it's legal, 
if they're not impaired and they've had marijuana over the weekend, how do you say they can't come to work? Or they now, you're an ER doctor yes. by training. What do you think? Well, I, I think legalizing it was is fine. I think that if we look at the Colorado experience, there was a lot of collateral damage related to legalizing. And what I mean by collateral damage, pets were ingesting marijuana that was left on the table, edibles. Children were having ED visits uh, because they were picking up edibles and eating them and having them be brought to the ED. The amount of driving under the influence went up in the state of Colorado as a result of marijuana. I think it's the right thing to do, but I don't think it's without consequence. It's just like alcohol has consequences. So could you compare the two, the alcohol I, and the marijuana? I think they're comparable on, on the on the. Have impact. you seen it? I mean, has the institution seen people going off the rails because of no, marijuana? No, we have not. Not yet. Not yet. And comparing alcoholism and marijuana usage, heavy marijuana usage, any insights? I don't think they're comparable. I mean, alcoholism is a very different disease than chronic marijuana use. Okay. I want to talk to you a little bit about your teams. We are always hearing on the air that nurses aren't paid well enough and that they're not getting enough. Is that right? No, I don't think at Albany Med that's correct, but maybe elsewhere that's correct. We just came to a very great agreement with the uh, nursing union, NISNA. That took uh, a while, didn't it? It did take a while, yes. Yeah to come to terms, but we've come to a great contract, which gives them a 1.5% raise every year with another 1.5% opportunity for merit. Uh, it flattens the cost of healthcare insurance, uh, and it's consistent with our philosophy about being f- fair to all of our employees, maintaining quality, safety, and being fiduciarily responsible. We are, as a not-for-profit organization, uh, we have to be responsible. So this contract meets all of the all of the elements that our board articulated for us. Every time I've been in a hospital, the nurses take care of me. Nurses are central front line to us. There's a question there somewhere. So in terms of the way we honor them, in terms of the way that we pay them, are we doing enough across the board? You know, you're a dean, you're going to be dean emeritus. Do we respect them enough? I think we do respect them enough. I think we give them a great deal of credit and responsibility for all that they do as as our uh, healthcare providers in our institution. Uh, compensation is, is a tough one for all of us. I think if you look at you know the margins of New York State hospitals, it's a very, very thin margin. And so we try to be fair to all of our employees and try to keep up with uh, the market and compensation in the market. And I think we've done a very good job up to this point. We've been talking with Dr. Vincent Verdile, the dean of the Albany Medical Center. Dean, I want to ask you this. You have associate deans who report to you. Is that tough? That relationship? It's a great relationship because I, I like to surround myself with people that are way smarter than I am. So it's been great. Me too. <laughs> it's been great to have a group of colleagues that are energetic, they're passionate, they love the missions of the medical center. Uh, so I've been very, very fortunate in my 20 years to be surrounded by incredible people that really have made me successful. And I, I thank them innumerable times for all their contributions to Albany Med. At what o'clock in the morning do you ever turn over and say, I shouldn't be retiring? <laughs> uh, no, I'm ready. Uh, I think uh, this has been 20 years plus a year as the interim dean, and I'm, I'm ready to uh, refocus myself, still be uh, an important cog in the system, as you mentioned. I yeah. still think I can have a role to help the organization. Uh, but the day-to-day operational things that I'm involved with, I'm, I'm ready to say I've I made my impact. I've done as much as I could get accomplished. Uh, time for some new eyes and ears and energy to, to take over. How do you handle crisis? In other words, all of us who run organizations have periodic crises. People come to us and say something happened. We have to deal with this now. I'm not great at it. How are you? (laughs) So I'm not without crises in our organization and and particularly my parts of the organization. So I I try to be first and foremost a good listener to hear about what happened, what transpired, who was affected, what were the who, who were the parties that were involved with it. Uh, and then come to a conclusion and an answer that, uh, you know, gets to the right uh, end point for the organization. So I worry not only about the medical college, but but the reputation sure. in, of the medical college and what impact the crisis will have on it. So that that's my broader concern all the time. So I, I insert myself early on. I interview the parties that are involved. I, I try to understand what transpired. Uh, then I make a decision. And sometimes that decision results in not all the parties being happy, as you can imagine. But sometimes people walk away and say, you know what, that was a fair decision. We had a bad crisis and we came out with a good decision. And did doctors 
fight with each other? Doctors fight just like anybody who works with colleagues. You have your disagreements over time. I wouldn't necessarily use the word fight, but uh, yes, of Is course. it about prestige or philosophy or technique? Why do uh, they fight? Uh, it, you know, sometimes it's about resources. You know, if you have an extra nurse and I don't have a nurse or you have yeah. a research technician in your lab and I don't have a research technician in my lab, some of those things boil to the top once in a while. And then you say to them, boys, boys. <laughs> or girls, girls, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Stop this. And that raises another issue. We only have a minute left, but women in the um, medical profession. Yes. There's been major change since you became the dean, obviously. Are you optimistic because of what you've seen? I'm, I'm very optimistic. I think uh, the medical school classes are now over 50% women around the country. We're not unique in that regard. Mm. And in, in reflection of that, I have 12 clinical chairs and four research chairs that run my departments. Of my 12 clinical chairs, six are women. And of my research chairs, two are women. So I've begun to you know, move an agenda that increases the diversity and inclusion of my leadership team over the last five or seven years. Well, we've been talking with Dr. Vincent Verdial, Dean of the Albany Medical College. Dr. Verdial, thanks so much for joining us today. I've learned a lot, and I so appreciate your being here. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it, too. Listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1 800 323 9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store. Music.